Praise God. Well, we're going we're gonna to celebrate the cross today. We're going to celebrate the fact that one man died on that so that none of us would have to. But I also want to exhort us today that we're, we're to receive the benefits of that salvation that we have. And I mean all of them. Like Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, my soul. Forget not all his goodness or his benefits. In other words, we need to be reminded sometimes. Because sometimes we go through life believing that there are certain things we're just going to have to learn how to live with. And we resign ourselves to something that somebody paid a tremendous price so that we wouldn't have to just learn how to live with those things anymore. Can you imagine, let's say, well, every parent kind of knows how this feels, but just imagine if you would work long and hard all day long just to benefit somebody else. You're getting sweaty. You're making something. You are pouring out your life even to the point where it's like they're hospitalized at the end of the day. And then you leave it behind for your kids or you leave it behind for your friends and they, they don't make use of it. They, they never go in. You built them a house and they don't move into the house. Or they move into the house, but they only live in the living room and, and they don't enjoy all the rooms that you built for them and you sacrifice for them. What a, what a heartbreak that would be for the one who sacrificed so much so that somebody could have life in that more abundantly. So today, we're going to look at the cross and all of what was in that thing. We've been talking about salvation. Last week, this week, salvation. What does it mean to be saved? Um, when, when the apostles were ministering, Peter got up in front of a crowd and, and he told them, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. So what does that word saved mean? Saved from what? Well, the obvious one, of course, is that we're saved from death, that we will breathe our last breath. Tomorrow, 50 years from now, we don't know what our day and hour is going to be. The Lord knows we don't know what that day is. From here until then, we're always praying for life and that more abundantly. I just want to throw this in. I don't know why. I, I can't get it out of my head, so I'm going to say it. You don't need to pray or ask the Lord, should I pray for healing right now, ever? The default setting, you know, when you get a, a computer or a laptop or something like that, and it's got default settings, you could change those if you want, but it comes with a default setting, and, and that's just how it is. Our default setting, when it comes to praying for anything that's, that's born in heaven, is pray for it, minister it. God would have to speak strong and clear don't pray for healing, which I so far have never heard in 33 years walking with him. Never heard the Lord say, no, don't stretch out your hand, pray healing right now. Never heard it. He would have to say it loud and strong. No, don't pray for, for you know, whatever, deliverance right now. Don't. He would have to really, really say it loud and strong. So I was talking with a friend not too long ago about healing, and he's uh, he doesn't believe in healing for today, Calvinist persuasion. And, and he, he said to me, and we have had this conversation before, he said, all right, well, if healing's for today, then how come everybody doesn't get healed when you, when you pray for them? I said, I don't know. How come everybody doesn't get saved when you preach salvation to them? Uh, there's a lot of answers to that question. Of course, if you're a Calvinist, it's very simple where they weren't the elect. Which that's, I'm not getting there. I'm not going there. It's simple. So, so I said, well, all right, so, so, so maybe they weren't elected for healing, and that's why they didn't get healed. I don't know point is we don't need to know answers to all those questions but we do need to know what has the lord said 
the word of the Lord trumps everything else that we think or believe. If God said it, we believe it, and that settles it. So there's only one name among men by which we must be saved. That word salvation is the word sozo. If you've been through our foundations class here, or if you've been around long enough, you have heard this word. It's a Greek word that means so much more than just you're not going to stay dead forever. You're going to have something right now. So what do we need to be saved from? What is it in life? You know, that word saved is so strong. Like you think, I'm drowning, and if a lifeguard doesn't save me, I'm going to die. That's, that's an extreme situation. But we need to be rescued, and we need to be set free from a lot more than that. How about like those intrusive thoughts that the Word of the Lord just came about? What, why every day or every night would we want to live with these anxious thoughts flooding our mind and robbing us of peace when we can have a life full of righteousness, peace, and joy? Why would we allow sickness or pain to remain in our body and just say, oh, well, that's, that's all right. No, I'd rather be rescued from that. I would rather not live with that for the rest of my life. So what if I told you that the good news is better than we thought? We thought good news meant, praise God, I got my ticket to paradise. I got two tickets to paradise. No, <laughs> I got my ticket to paradise, so when I die, I'm going to live again. There is so much more, so much more than just the ticket to eternal life. It begins right now. If you are in Christ, your eternal life has already begun. And there is nothing that we need to wait for that Christ made available to us until after we're raised from the dead, except being raised from the dead. Here's a little moment of obvious 101. To be raised from the dead, you got to be dead. So that one you're going to have to wait for. Everything else is right now. Everything else is for us right now. So if we've learned how to apprehend those things, salvation means to save, to be delivered. You don't need to be tormented by that demonic thing that keeps coming over you a moment longer. You don't need to learn to live with that. We don't make peace treaties with the devil. And just, you know, if you don't bother me, I won't bother you. You know, years ago I learned this, um, you know, we say knock on wood. Like if you're saying God did something good, so oh, knock on wood. You know, I, I used to kind of shrug that off, and then I remembered something, that this is a pagan thing to do. It's a pagan thing because you, were, you knock on wood so that the evil spirits don't hear what you're saying and ruin the testimony or ruin the good news. So when you say something good just happened, you say, oh, knock on wood. Don't do that. It's so dumb. Don't do that anymore. Now that you know, now you know, now you're responsible. Don't knock on wood. Shout what God's doing from the mountaintop. And let them evil spirits writhe all they want. They have no power over you. They have no sway in your life. To be delivered means I am no longer under the influence of something that's controlling my life. You know what one of the greatest first gifts of salvation is? We got our free will back. Now we can make choices again. Before that, the scripture says we were slaves to sin. Slaves don't make choices. Slaves do what they're told. And we had certain things in us certain things from the power of darkness that were controlling our lives. We got set free at the cross, every chain broken, we're out of prison right now. Now we got choices again. Now some of us, and I mean us, are dumb enough to put our hands back in some chains. I have good news for you. You can experience deliverance again. What I'm saying is the cross was sufficient to handle absolutely everything. But we still have old habits, we have old ways, 
and we have ways that we invite darkness back into our lives by perpetuating certain habits and ways of living. Today, we're going to crucify those things. Are you excited? I'm excited that the cross is now a spiritual thing, that we don't actually have to hang on something and be punished and pay a price for what we've done any longer. All we've got to do is grab hold of what was put on that cross already for us and say, oh, that thing that's still alive in me or that thing that's still tormenting me, dragging me down, I can put it in Christ on that cross and it's dead. And by the way, that stuff doesn't get raised from the dead. Only Christ in us gets raised from the dead on the other side. Everything that we crucify in Christ gets buried in the grave and the only thing that comes out on the other side is heaven-born stuff. That's good news, ain't it? That's really good news. So here's our motto. Here, Paul summed it up. Paul uh, wrote a letter to the Galatians, and he wanted to make sure that they understood because what they were doing, he wrote this whole letter. It's kind of ranty. He was really upset with them. He said, who bewitched you? And he's go, what? He said some pretty rude things in there about people that were trying to bring dead religion back into a pure life in Christ. He said, who tricked you into that nonsense? What, you began by faith, by grace, and now you think you're going to finish it by the works of your own hands? What are you, stoned? I mean, that's a paraphrase of what he said, but I think it's a good modern. What's wrong with you? Why would you do that? And so he said, look, here's how we live. This is, this is my life motto, I think. Paul said, I am crucified in Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And even this life that I live in the flesh... Not in the flesh in the sense of, I live a sinful flesh life. He means this physical life that I'm living right now. I'm still in this body. I'm still alive. This life that I live in the flesh, I live by the faith, by faith in the Son of God's way. This translation I put up for you has it. But you could also say, and I think better say, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Meaning, it's his faith in me now. I don't have to work up faith. I don't have to work up belief. All I have to do is reject unbelief when it comes my way. All I have to do is reject faithlessness because our new character in Christ is to be as faithful as Jesus. How faithful was Jesus? He remained obedient even to the point of death, even the death of a cross. That life is in us. That is your new nature, saint of God. That's what we've got in us. So salvation from every single curse of sin has already been crucified with Christ. Last words are really important. I'm so glad that my father-in-law gave us good last words to remember. Memories of a man whose last words were all Christ-centered. Memories of, uh, it was just tremendous to be around like that. Jesus had some last words too. And his last of his last words was teleos. That's a Greek word that means, you can translate it, it is finished. But some hear that, and think, well, that means he just said, okay, it's finished. I'm ready to breathe my last breath. My life is over. Oh, it means so much more than that. Because what was he carrying on there? I read the scripture out of Colossians to you. All of the weight, the, 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 um, the debt of sin that was against us, the, uh, the debt, it's, it was all canceled. He nailed it to a cross. He battled principalities and powers, and he displayed his triumph over them publicly. Every single thing that you and I contend with in life, that robs us of righteousness, peace, and joy, was in Christ on that cross. So when he allowed himself, remember, he didn't die because they crucified him. He told everybody ahead of time, nobody could take my life from me. 
I have life in myself. I'm not a martyr. Jesus was not a martyr. Don't ever let anybody reduce him to that. A martyr is somebody who dies for a cause. Jesus didn't die. He laid down his life. There's a difference. Death did not have any hold on Jesus. Why? The scripture says the wages of sin is death. So even on the cross, he could look death right in the face and say, you can't take me. I've never worked for sin. And so I don't get a paycheck from you, death. I don't, I don't get that paycheck. We all deserve that paycheck. We all, right? I'm just making sure because otherwise, Ariel, will just give you the mic. Jesus is here. You can have the mic, Jesus. But when, when, when we put it on that cross, it's already been crucified with Christ. However, our experience of that salvation is on the other side of us picking up our own cross daily, following after him. That, that whole thing, I know I talked a little bit about this last week, about the, I got to bear my cross. You ever hear, uh, we, we use that so wrong sometimes. Like I heard this dude at Christ Community, he was, we were talking and he was having struggles at work and this boss that was just on him all the time. And he was saying, oh, it's, it's just my cross to bear. You know, my boss is my cross to bear. No, he, he's not your cross. Stop it. Stop the drama. He's not whipping you. He's, you know, he's just irascible maybe. Or we say, you know, whatever our bad or horrible life experience is, it's just my cross to bear. To which now I've learned to say, well, why are you still carrying that thing? You don't need to carry your cross for the rest of your life. Even Jesus didn't carry his cross for but an hour. What's the cross for? It's an instrument of crucifixion. It's to put something to death. If it's your cross to bear, maybe instead of carrying it all the days of your life, get up on it and die already. I mean, that's what a cross is for. It's not to torment us for the rest of our life. I think, it, and, and some of this either comes because we have a wrong view of God or uh, we get a wrong view of God because we think he put this on us, like that, whatever, that sickness, that grief, that you know oppression, whatever it is. And we believe God's the source and we just got to carry this cross for the rest of our life. Saint of God, crucify that thing in Christ today and stop carrying it. It is not yours to carry. He already carried it. And if you're in Christ and you've been crucified in Christ, then today is your last day. Today is your last day to be carrying that thing that torments you. When it comes to the cross of Christ, everything that he made available is available 24-7 to whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. There is no restriction on it. There is no, hey, clean up your act first. Then you can access this treasure on the other side. The reason why the very first thing that happened as soon as Jesus breathed his last breath, the the sky got cloudy, there was an earthquake, and it says that the veil in the temple was torn in two. What that signified was the way to the mercy seat was now wide open. No ceremonies, no restrictions, no only priests only beyond this point. It is for whosoever will call on the name of the Lord. There's nobody who got in this kingdom any other way for the last 2,000 years. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek. It doesn't matter if you came as a slave or free. It doesn't matter if you came man or woman or from any race around the planet. It doesn't matter what you did before. It doesn't matter any of those things. The, the, the veil's wide open. Now it's upon us to just walk through it. So we've got to apprehend it. We've got to grab hold of the thing that's available. 
And the first picture we get of something dying in the place of another before the law of Moses even existed was when Israel was in Egypt, the Hebrews were enslaved in Egypt, and they had just finished seeing nine plagues poured out on the Egyptians as a prelude to the last plague that would be finally the one that broke the back of their enemies, the slaveholders, and allowed them to go free. And for the first nine plagues, all of the Hebrews were protected from whatever that plague was poured out. They didn't have boils on their skin. Their cattle weren't dying. They didn't have darkness when the rest of Egypt was in darkness. All of those other ones, they were protected because they were Hebrews. Because they could say our fathers are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were part of God's family. But then there came the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. And for that plague, for the first time, God told the people, you got to do something if you want to be protected from this one. Now is where our partnership begins. You were slaves before, so I did battle with your enemies. And by the way, all of the plagues represented the ten major gods of Egypt. The ones that had the principalities and powers that were ruling and keeping God's people captive. You should come sometime when we do a Passover Seder here. We walk through this, this whole thing together. It's a really powerful experience. The 10th plague, though, now we got a co-labor. We have to do something, and a perfect lamb was shed. So Exodus um, 12, what verse do I want to start in today? Exodus 12, and I'll start in verse 21. Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the doorposts, and none of you shall go outside until morning. For the Lord will pass through or pass over, that's where we get Passover from, to smite the Egyptians But when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your house to smite you. Observe this event as an ordinance for you and for your children forever. You must apply the blood onto your own door. And by the way, Israel came out, it says a mixed multitude. I'll bet, I would bet money that after seeing nine plagues, they had some Egyptians over for dinner that night who were outside their door saying, hey, uh, see what you're doing there? What's happening next? Can I come over? When people see the blood of Jesus applied to our lives, there's a, can I have, can I, uh, whatever you got that gives you that, I want some of that. The point is though, it's not enough just to believe in the power of the cross. The demons know the power of the cross. The devil knows better than anybody the power of the cross. It's not enough just to believe in it. There's got to be an act of faith. It must be applied by faith. There's got to be some kind of response to the word of the Lord of faith. And it could be something that we have to do or something that we just confess with our mouth. Speaking words with our mouth is as powerful as doing those things. If there's action required, by all means, we got to act and respond to the word but just even confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead is enough to bring us from darkness to light. That's how powerful our mouth is. So applying the cross by faith. We're going to walk through 
Isaiah 53, to look at all the benefits of the cross. We can, you could really just read through your New Testament, start in the book of Acts, and on every page you're going to find something else of our inheritance in Christ, something else that we have access to of life and that more abundantly. You don't have to go very far. Every page you're going to find something of the peace of God, the healing, the deliverance, all the things that are in the cross are on every page. But amazingly, a prophet who lived centuries before Jesus summed it up in one chapter, and it's Isaiah 53. If you have your Bible, please turn to that chapter. And you're going to want to write some of these things down because we're going to have communion, but it's going to be you and Jesus' communion today. Maybe if you want, you'll have, you'll have somebody else praying for you if God brings something up, but we'll, we'll administrate that later. But for right now, this chapter describes in detail it's an amazing thing when you read the prophet Isaiah. You talk about a man who lived in heavenly places. He writes past tense. So he's writing events that are going to happen 600 years later, five, 600 years later, and he's writing as if he's looking back at them, writing history. This chapter is so powerful. If you have Jewish family, I hope you're still praying for Israel, but included in your prayers for Israel, apart from what's going on with the war, Pray that they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Pray that they will receive Messiah. As I've talked with a couple of rabbis about this who are unbelievers, and they believe Isaiah 53 is Israel. That's how they interpret that passage. Then that's the reason for anti-Semitism all through the ages. Well, we're that one who is a chastisement for the world to bring peace to the world. It's, wow, it's a horrible twist. If you had any idea that your Messiah walked in your midst 2,000 years ago and he's still yours today, oh man, what you would have as a nation. Do you know Israel should have been the first Christian nation? That's, what that's the opportunity they had in the day of Jesus to be the first Christian nation and the only biblical nation whose borders are drawn by God. But that's, they have it. Isaiah 53 is so accurate in describing the cross that some Liberal scholars say it was written after the cross, which is utter nonsense. And now we have scrolls and archaeologists have found, now, nah, dude, we had this like centuries before it happened. So it was as if Isaiah was looking at Christ on a cross and then he saw what was happening spiritually in that body as it hung on the cross. Today, come in in your heart to make good use of the sacrifice of the only perfect life that's ever lived and experience life and that more abundantly. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Oh, it's just so, I read this sometimes as I pray, and you know, I'm half Jew, so I pray, I call them, they're my people, I pray for my people. I think I say, I warned you of exactly what you were going to do. He said, don't heed this, take this warning, it's written in the prophets right there. Don't treat lightly the one because he doesn't come in the form you think he's coming in. I think that's still a word for the hour for us. When Jesus wants to come into our lives, don't think that you know how he's going to show up. Don't believe for a minute that you've read the scriptures so you know it all. 
This word is so, I mean, it's amazing and it's so intense, but it's so, it, it so needs to be understand, understood spiritually. And Jesus just has a way of showing up in the form that we don't expect. They were expecting a conquering king. He came as a suffering lamb. They wanted a lion. He came as a lamb. And they didn't get it. We need to just expect Jesus to come in a way that we weren't expecting. That's a Selah freebie. We really just need to open our eyes and see how the Lord's going to do what he's going to do in our day. And I, I'm, I'm uh, 100% convinced that he's showing up in ways that we're not looking for. Those who have eyes to see will see. Those who have ears to hear will hear. So shut off the talking head. Shut off the one who's interpreting the times for you and look to the Lord. He's going to show you great and amazing things. Great and amazing things that are going on and your soul's going to be encouraged and you're going to go out and bring life in that more abundantly. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. All of you who have lost a loved one know the feeling of that, the feeling of grief, the feeling of, you know, it, it just kind of comes in waves and right in the middle, all of a sudden, it, sometimes a thought, sometimes it's just a wave of grief and you just cry and you don't even know why you're crying. You just know my heart is broken because I'm missing something that I loved. And that's, that's what grief is. And we have a saying like, man, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. You know, and you could go back to whatever day you had a traumatic incident happen in your life and say, man, I would love, uh, we would say, oh, I wouldn't wish that day. I wish I could have skipped that day. I, I would have rued that day. I want to tell you that Jesus chose that day. He said, I will, although I don't deserve it, although I have access to everything heaven can afford, I want to live that day. I want to experience everything that all those I'm going to carry on that cross of experience, I even want to be tempted in every way that they were tempted. And I want to know what it feels like to be human because in heaven there is nothing but joy, fullness of joy. At God's right hand, there's nothing but pleasures forever. There's no sorrow in heaven. There's no heartbreak in heaven. There's no sickness in heaven. There's none of those things that we've learned to live with here in the earth. And Jesus said, I choose that day that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. So when we get into a situation where we say, oh God, how could you do this to me? Or why are you leading me through this pain right now? Don't believe for a minute the lie that says, well, Jesus would never do that. Why would he make me do it? Believe the truth that's, oh, Jesus already did it. He knows exactly what I'm experiencing right now. He knows what it feels like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to lose a friend to death. He knows all of those things and he chose it when he could have called a legion of angels and gotten out of it. That's our Jesus. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was struck for our iniquities or crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. And all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has called the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Thank you, Jesus. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, 
yet he did not open his mouth. You hear it? He's, he's like looking back as if he lived in 33 AD when Jesus was crucified and he's looking at it like, I saw it happen. I was an eyewitness to this crucifixion. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom that stroke was due. <laughs> you know, after you come to know somebody, like how could I have ever thought that about you? You ever meet somebody that you had a bad opinion of because of the gossip or slander that you'd heard about them? You meet them, you spend a little bit of time with them. And you're like, Man, how did I ever believe evil about you? That's how I feel with Jesus every time I read this passage. How did I ever believe that you were not perfection of love incarnate? How did I ever believe that you were not the most perfect thing in all of God's creation? How did I ever believe that you were anything less than God incarnate to whom the stroke was due? I deserved the wages of all the dumb things I've done in my life. I deserve to have all of those things. You ever feel that way? Don't, don't get under any shame. But that's the feeling. That's the feeling. It's part of being made in the image of God. We know when we've done wrong. And, and there's something that we carry afterward. And we know that, man, I deserve whatever evil comes in my life. I made my bed. I'm going to have to lie in it. And there's Jesus comes along and says, nope. Nope. You might have deserved it. But I'm carrying that. I'm carrying that. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied and by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, was numbered with the transgressors. He himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So a guilt offering. He's described as a guilt offering in the Old Testament times and really throughout every system of worship in ancient times, you could bring something that was spotless and without blemish and offer it, acknowledging, I sinned. I sinned against heaven. I sinned against my fellow man, and I'm not worthy any longer. I know that I am not. I would spoil paradise if I'd walk in. I would like bring a disease into a, a perfectly um, uh, disease-free room with my life. And so... Lord, I acknowledge it. I'm going to sacrifice this perfect thing to you to stand in my place and receive the punishment that I deserve. So a guilt offering is a perfect sacrifice to stand instead of a guilty party bearing the full and just punishment for the guilty one. You and I have such a one in Christ who stood in there. So why are you punishing yourself? If the guilt offering's been provided, then why would we work some kind of penance because we wronged again. This is the amazing thing about the cross. When you and I were chosen in Christ, and I'm assuming since nobody came forward when I offered a call for salvation earlier, that I'm speaking to people who are all in Christ. I'm just going to presume that on your behalf. 
that we came to a place where we stood before the courts of heaven and acknowledged, I am guilty. There's only two ways you're getting out of a court where the sentence, where, where you're facing capital punishment for what you did. Either you're found innocent or you are found guilty. It's only two choices I tripped up there on. Guilty means that's it. You're going, you're facing the death penalty for what you've done. And uh, this court finds you guilty. The gavel comes down and that's it. That's the end of your life. Innocent means we find that, hey, you actually didn't do that. We, uh, you know, we were wrong to charge you with that crime. And so you are now free to go. You're acquitted. You can go free. Well, nobody is innocent. Nobody's lived their life without wronging, harming, and doing all kinds of stuff. So how are we going to get out of this courtroom alive? The great news is somebody else named Jesus can come in and say, how about if I stand instead? And you can say, we're going to wipe the slate and call it a day because I will bear that punishment for them. Justified means that justice has been served. That's what justified means. Justice was served. God is good, but God is also just. There is no way that the guilty can leave this place unpunished. It wouldn't be fair. It's not right. All of us have an innate, innate sense of justice. You ever watch a movie where the villain at the end gets away with it? That's a very unsatisfying movie. All oh, don't don't look at me like that. You know what I'm talking about. If they've done a good job of painting a villain that you just despise by the end of the movie, and you can't wait for him to get what's his, and he gets away and lives a good, prosperous life somewhere, man, you want to get yourself in that story and take care of business at the end of it because we're made in the image of God. God is just. And so justice has to be served. Jesus came in, said, okay, you can move. I'm going to stand in your place. And all we've got to do is say, I wanna, I'm going to be in him. If he is standing in my place and I'm in him, he gets raised from the dead, I get raised from the dead. That's justified. It says that he bore our griefs. What else is on this cross? Our griefs are on that cross. Now, griefs is maybe not the best translation in terms of how we use that word today because it literally means a disease or a sickness. Everywhere else that word's used in the Old Testament, it means a physical sickness or a physical disease. Now, it can be used as a metaphor to describe you are so full of sin, it's like you're sick. You're spiritually sick. But mostly it means in your body, you have pain, you have an illness, you have something that can kill you if it's not addressed. That's what he carried on the cross. He carried the physical pain. Your healing is available on that cross. Absolutely everything that we face in life physically was crucified in Christ on that cross. In a few moments, you're going to have a chance with whatever physical things you're carrying by faith to say, I grab hold of that sickness that was on Christ. I'm taking that sickness off myself and I'm putting it on Christ on that cross and I'm asking for that work that I already have. It's crucified. This sickness in me is crucified with Christ. You can say that because it's right in there. These are all the things that he was carrying when he made a display of principalities and powers on that cross. Physical healing, it's part of the atonement. It's part of what Jesus purchased on the cross. With all respect to those who don't believe there's any such thing as miracles today, I don't know how they get that out of the Bible still. I've tried my best to understand their perspective. I just can't unsee what I've read on those pages. 
And I also can't unsee what I've seen with my own eyes and touched with my own hands of the people that have been healed over the years that I've just seen it right in front of me. You heard testimony today. Why is it normal? Because he crucified it on the cross. Isaiah knew it 600 years before it happened. He carried our sorrows. Our sorrows are the pain and the suffering, the things that bring grief to our heart. So that is in there too. He carried our sorrows. He experienced, you know, you ever wonder why when Jesus stood at the tomb of Lazarus, everybody's favorite memory verse, Jesus wept. That's a whole verse of scripture right there. And I'm glad that the guy who put the numbers in, you know, the writers didn't put those in. Some monk put them in. And I'm glad he kind of paused there because just fathom this for a minute. Jesus already knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He stood in front of that tomb. And I'd love to know all the thoughts that were going through his heart. Even as he stood in faith, knowing in a few minutes, Lazarus is going to come out. And yet he wept. Why did Jesus weep? He wanted to experience that pain that everybody else around him was experiencing. Oh, this is what it feels like to be in a human body that just lost somebody that they love. And he wept, even though he knew by faith that man's coming out of the grave in a few moments. That's how much he carries our sorrows, everything that brings pain, everything that brings suffering, yesterday, today, and in the future. Put it on that cross today. It's in Christ. Don't carry that sorrow. I know there's some that have been traumatized by life. Things have happened. You've been abused in every kind of way. Things have happened to you. People have done things to you. I've got good news for you today that Jesus already crucified it and you can grab hold of the freedom from that thing, the salvation from that thing that weighs your heart down right here, right now on this day. It says that he was pierced for our transgressions. So transgressions are shaking the hand at heaven, saying to God, I don't care what you say, I'm going to do this anyway. It's a rebellion. It's a revolt. It's a willful defiance of authority. I know that some are too timid to actually do this to God. Some are more frank of speech and have literally gone, oh, I'm really mad at you right now. and I don't care. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. That's transgressions. It means I knew what I... I saw the sign that said 55 and I drove 85 right past it anyway because I don't care. I'm in a hurry. Woo! Now you pulled over. I got good news for you. You might have done it on purpose, but he already crucified it. Put it in him on that cross and stop punishing yourself. You know how we punish ourselves in the church where we don't do like Martin Luther used to actually he had a whip that he made and whenever he'd have a sinful thought, he started whipping his back. It's like he bloodied himself to punish himself for his sin. This is before he got his revelation, by the way. This was, I almost said old covenant, but it was old covenant style. I've got to pay a price for my sin. I did wrong, so I've got to experience some kind of pain for what I did. And, and, and we do that, but we don't actually, well, I hope none of you does. Maybe some of you do, I don't know. Are there traditions in the church that do that still? Probably. It's called penance. I'm going to punish myself for what I did. I did wrong. I did it on purpose. I deserve to be punished. The good news is you, don't need, you can't. It is finished means you don't have to do part B of this. You don't have to pick up where I left off. 
to punish ourselves for our transgressions is to say the cross was insufficient, Jesus, you wasted your time. It's to say to Jesus, I don't think what you did is sufficient enough. I've got to add to your work. I have a better way of dealing with my sin than what you did for me on that cross. And the answer, no, we don't. It is finished. Your rebellion, your revolt, your willful defiance of authority, repent of it and crucify it on that cross in Christ today. Then it says he was crushed for our iniquities. That's another word for sin. The four Hebrew words for sin, two of them are used in this passage. Our iniquity is a willful twisting or perversion of what's good and right. So this is where deception comes in. This is where our ability to rationalize sin comes in. So it's not the same as I'm shaking my hand, I don't care, I know what I'm doing. It's a, I'm going to be tricked into doing something that in my heart of hearts I know is wrong, but I've been able to justify it in my mind. This is how a lot of stealing happens. You know, we, I know people who have stolen from workplaces, they've confessed, uh, who say, you know, I'm underpaid. I'm always sacrificing. They make me buy my own supplies for this place. So it's only a hundred bucks. They're not going to miss it. They're wealthy and they're cheating me every day. So I'm just going to take that money. And it's been justified. That's iniquity. That's when there's something of a deception that works and then we act out on our sin. You've done that. I've got good news for you. You can repent of it by crucifying that iniquity in Christ. Put it on the cross today. Own it once and for all. And if, by the way, in both of these things, transgressions and iniquities, you find yourself stumbling and falling again and again and again into the same thing, and you find yourself, there I am, repenting for the 65th time today about the same thing, first I want to say to you, well done. Because instead of running away from God, you ran toward God in the middle of that. I got even better good news for you, that if Jesus told his disciples that they've got to forgive 70 times 7, if somebody comes and sins against me again and again, so that's 490 times in a day, it's really hard to mess up that many times in one day. If he required it of us, that means he's already that way. He is so forgiving and so merciful. Not to use that as a, and a way of working iniquity. I'll sin so that I can be forgiven, and then I'll willfully sin again so I could be forgiven again. When, when somebody was, will say to me, like, I'm so tired of struggling with this sin, I say, praise God that you're tired of struggling with it, but I also praise God that you're struggling. You're not just giving in to it and saying, oh, well, this is my lot in life. Wherever you find yourself on that today, put it on Christ in that cross, crucify it, leave it once and for all, and ask him now for the grace, the power that's available through that cross to help you walk out in newness of life. The chastisement that brought us peace was laid upon him, our chastening. So this is the discipline. This is the punishment. This is the correction that comes with consequence. This is the take you out to the woodshed moment for what you did. We don't punish ourselves. He's already been punished for us. You can say that we had this um, thing that I guess was a real thing called a whipping boy. If you were a wealthy kid and you had slaves... There could be a slave in the house that would take the whipping that you deserved for you. What a demonic twist on the cross that is, but what a great picture of what the cross is. This whipping boy will stand in your stead, take the chastisement that you deserve so that you could have something different. 
Stop punishing yourself. Receive the punishment that was put on Christ and be crucified in him today. The chastisement that brought our well-being. This one word, this is uh, that brought us peace. The King James translates it. This is that Hebrew word shalom. Everybody knows the Hebrew word shalom. Everybody, even if you never opened a Bible, you know the word shalom. But it means a lot more than just, you know, peace out, man. It's, it's all good. Peace is an inward reality reflected by outward reality, oh, an outward reality reflective of an inward work. Peace is completeness, soundness, welfare. It, it's wholeness. It means nothing is missing, nothing is broken. Soundness of mind and body. It means I'm not missing anything out on life. If I'm supposed to have a functioning body of seven trillion cells working in perfect harmony, that's peace. Peace sometimes, you know, the picture of peace, you probably heard this is when uh, bones have been, when a bone's been broken and it gets put back together again, we can say that bone's at peace when the healing's complete. And by the way, there are some who walk around and proudly call themselves like the walking wounded, meaning I've got a testimony of brokenness. And because of that testimony of brokenness, that's what gives me power in the ministry that I have. And it's close, but not quite. Healed people heal people. If we go around and we just say, well, I'm broken, I had this thing happen, and I'm like bleeding all over the place, and that's why my ministry means so much to people. You might be able to empathize with people, but you don't have the power and authority to set people free and tell people, hey, I can point you to a healer who made me at Shalom. I know the way to the God of Shalom because I've experienced it, and I'm whole right now. I once was not. The scourging, by his scourging, we are healed. The stripes, the King James puts it, by his stripes we're healed. It literally means a bruise or a wound or an injury. Some of, some of us here and some watching, I know you were physically abused, like you have scars on you because of the continual abuse. Whether it was sexual, physical, whatever kind of abuse, I want to I tell you that although the physical scars may remain, the emotional ones don't need to. That the scourging, that actual physical damage that was done to you was laid on that cross. Jesus, it's like, you know, he only needed to die for our sins. That's all that needed to happen. In the Old Testament sacrifice system, that perfect spotless lamb would be killed just in a moment. It didn't suffer. It just died. And that blood was able to stand in place as a substitutionary sacrifice. But it was like Jesus said, you know, I just, I got to experience everything. I've got to be able to carry it in my body so I can crucify that too. So why the, I mean, the death of the cross was horrific enough, but why the scourging? Why the beating, the pulling out of the beard? All of those other things that he endured, it was as if he wanted us to know for all time, even if those things happen to you because of the sin that's in the world, I just want you to know, you can put that on me too. I'm going to carry it, not in theory. I'm literally going to carry that and crucify it on a cross for you. So yeah, even the physical abuse that you've endured, that left emotional scars, he carried it. Put it on that cross today. By those stripes, we are healed. We're healed. Rapha, the precious Hebrew word, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord our healer. We are made fresh 
We're restored to health. We are mended. We are cured. We are whole. That's what's available in that cross. So would you please stand to your feet? And we're going to do this uh, now in communion. Don't go get the kids just yet. What you doing? So I got a, I got a picture up front here of water. And as you've ever walked through water, like maybe a foot or so, you're kind of sloshing through and you're getting wet. Well, that's what this blood is all about. When we're taking it, we're washing ourselves. So if you felt led to, to do something else symbolically, washing through up front here, because a lot of times up front here when we're praying, there's an anointing up here. And I sense that, that that river's up here right now. So just symbolically walk through there and splash up and receive that healing. Thank you, Bill. You can do that as you, um, as you take communion. We're going to break bread together. It's okay. You can put it on. Just turn, keep it low for a minute. Um, this body that was broken for us wasn't just to go through some motions. We could have a religious, you know, kind of life in front of us. Son of Man took on flesh and blood so he could become an actual physical sacrifice. Everything that we go and go through in life, everything that we experience, consider this bread, as Jesus said at the Last Supper, this is my body, which is given for you. We're each going to take a portion of this is body today and grab hold of one of those things or more. You can take as many as you want. They're always, always available. You don't need to limit yourself. So you want to come back for seconds and thirds, you can come back for seconds and thirds. There's plenty to go around. Just take a little piece. So there's plenty for everybody. Take a portion of this Christ and whatever you're in need of, whatever part of that word today touched you and you said, you know what? I want to grab hold of more of that. I need healing in my body. I need healing in my mind. I need that, that piece that goes beyond understanding. I'm lacking in something that this cross purchased for me. Today, grab hold of it, take it in, and make it a part of you. Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to pay it all. We thank you for your willingness to stand in our stead, and we partake of this today, not through some religious ritual, but we ask you to inhabit this communion today. Be physically among us right now in a manifest way. Whatever we have not yet laid upon that cross, we commit right now to put it on you and bear the weight no longer. We say in Jesus' name, we will not carry for a moment longer anything that you already carried up to Calvary on that precious day 2,000 years ago. Thank you, Jesus. So what I'm going to do is break this bread. There'll be a, a chunk on the front table and a chunk on the back table. Just take a portion of that. Find a spot in the room. We just had a, a vision, a word. Maybe you want to come up and join in this altar up here in the front and just get before the Lord, but partake of it individually, okay? This won't be a corporate join together with others. This is a you and Jesus moment. What part of that cross, the scripture's right up there from Isaiah, what part of that cross are you in need of today? Grab hold of it. Make his sacrifice worth his life. Amen. And then we'll close up together in a song and we'll, we'll finish out our gathering this morning. Thank you, Jesus.